Well, it's that time of the year. Again, it's shoebox month. If you've been with us the last couple of years, what we do is we cooperate with Samaritan's Purse in a project called Operation Christmas Child to give children around the world, especially in war-torn countries, a chance to receive a gift that they never would otherwise. And uh, we got about, not we as a church here, but around the, uh, the country and Canada and England last year, about a million shoeboxes to kids around the world. We uh, want to put out about here about 10,000 this year. And so we um, ask you to take a shoebox that you have, um, or you can get a box in the foyer that conspicuously looks much like a shoebox, though it's not, it's that size. Um, there's instructions on what to fill it with and how to prepare it for boys and girls around the world. We'll collect them by the end of November, and we will take them to people in Rwanda, to Bosnia, to Iraq, to South America, about 30 different countries, and give these out in the name of Jesus Christ, share the gospel with them. It's a great, great opportunity. We uh, would like you to grab a box, or grab a hundred boxes if you'd like. One guy in the church took a whole bunch of them, went around to his neighbors, knocked on all of the doors, told them about the project, gave them a box, and said, I'll have a huge box in my front yard when you're done, and then I'll take them. So he's collecting a bunch of them uh, to get involved. So have at it. Let's turn now to... Um, Let's turn now to Psalm 115. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 115. I almost said, let's turn in your shoebox to Psalm 115, but I knew that wouldn't work. Father, help us now as we study your word. We want to receive, we want to be instructed so that we might please you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. A man by the name of Lyman Abbott paraphrased the Lord's Prayer to reflect the way the humanist would think, and he paraphrased it this way. Our brethren who art on earth, hallowed be our name. Our kingdom come, our will be done on earth, for there is no heaven. We must get this day our daily bread. We neither forgive nor are forgiven. We fear not temptation, for we deliver ourselves from evil. For ours is the kingdom and the power, and there is no glory, and there is no forever. Amen. What a contrast that is to the opening verse of Psalm 115, where we read, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy And because of your truth. Instead of looking to ourselves, Lord, we look to you. You are God. Now, the psalmist is not contending with humanists, but idolaters. And the psalm will reflect the fact that around the psalmist, around the nation of Israel, are those who have set up little images, carvings of their gods, and they use them in their worship And there is a comparison between the false gods of these nations and the true God of Israel. The people that had their little idols were saying to these Israelites, Where is your God? You can see ours. We have visual aids, but your God is invisible. This psalm was probably written after the Babylonian captivity. They had just been in Babylon. They had had their fill, you might say, of idols. Now they're back in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the nation. They're in poverty. They're suffering. 
And thus the people around them are saying, where is your God? Where's the help? Where's the effect? I heard about two young boys. They were brothers. They were kind of ornery. They would interrupt class at school. They would pick on neighborhood kids. And uh, the mom didn't know what to do, so she thought she'd have the pastor over to have a talking to these kids. The pastor came over and wanted to be subtle, didn't want to really confront the kids and have them turn off. So he did want the kids, however, to realize that there is a God, that God sees everything, God knows everything, and God doesn't like it when you treat your neighbor poorly. So he thought he would be subtle and ask them questions to draw them out so they'd come to their own conclusions. Took the kids aside. He said, boys, where is God? They didn't know how to answer, so they said nothing. Now, the pastor gets a little frustrated. His approach isn't working, so he's a little firmer this time. He goes, boys, where is God? Surely you can answer such a simple question. Now, the kids are stunned. They're just looking at him. And the third time, even a little more firmly, he says, where is God? And at that point, the older brother whispers to his younger brother, Come on, let's get out of here. God's missing and they're trying to blame us for it. (laughs) You know, I think God's been missing in America for quite some time. Ever since the 1960s with this movement, God is dead, people have been frantically searching to have some experience with the divine, some alternate religious experience, really, other than the true God. Why is that? Because within every person there's this craving to know God. Does God exist? The Roman statesman Cicero said, there is an element of religion in every single person. And so your kids at an early age ask you questions, uncomfortable questions. Daddy, how big is God? Daddy, how old is God? What does he look like exactly? We don't like those abstract questions. We don't know quite how to answer them. Or we'll answer them not based upon Scripture, but what we think. In fact, that's how many people come up with views on God. It's like a fill-in-the-blank, isn't it? I picture God as, my view of God is, and we're left to imagination instead of scriptural revelation. So people will say, well, I think of God as a big Santa Claus. He gives me whatever I claim. Or I think of God as a great artist. He's not really a judge. He would never do that. He's just a nice, accepting, artistic type. Others will say, well, I don't even accept God as a him. He's a, he's a she, a female deity. Well, we come to this psalm and we see basically three things that stand out. It sort of begins with a problem, an issue, a contention, and that is God is invisible. And then he goes on to a comparison between the idols, the false gods of the other nations, and the true God. Let's get into verse 1 and 2. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? Now, keep in mind that the standing religious system 
in Israel was polytheism. For the most part, the peoples had many, many gods. There was the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of fire, the god of the hills, the god of the plains, the god of the rivers, the god of the ocean. And all of these gods were worshipped outwardly with images, statues, carvings. People would bow down to them. Or they were pantheistic. Everything is a part of God. You're a part of God. I'm a part of God. The tree is God. And so here is Israel not having any image that they would bow down or use in their worship system and all of the other nations lining up their gods, looking at the children of Israel's absence of these idols and say, where is your God? Here's our gods. Where is yours? Now, whenever a person or a group of people craft an image, it indicates something about that person. Number one, it would indicate that man has lost his consciousness of God and he needs a visible reminder. Think about it. If you have a living, vibrant, vital, daily relationship with God, nobody needs to remind you. You don't need a a visual aid, really. It's not like, well, you're walking through your house, you see the image, you go, oh, yes, God exists. Yes, I should pray to God. You have a relationship with Him. You know He exists. And really, the answer to God is dead is, no, He's not. I just spoke with Him this morning. And He spoke with me through His Word. And He speaks through His Son. Friedrich Jacobi said, Where idolatry ends, there Christianity begins. And where idolatry begins, there Christianity ends. So it indicates man has lost the consciousness, the awareness of God. Secondly, it indicates that we have a problem with the invisible God. How do you have a personal relationship when you can't see the person? It's probably why Moses, though he heard the voice of God and saw the works of God, said, God, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want visibility. And God said, Moses, if you see me, you'll die. No man can see me and live in all of my glory. And that's why, perhaps, the whole thought of the coming of Jesus Christ and being able to, in eternity, see the face of God is so attractive to us. It's something we look forward to. It's called the blessed hope. We read that in Titus chapter 2, looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But do you remember H.G. Wells' fantasy story about the invisible man? How through science he figured out a way to... He could be present but not seen. At first it was great, but after a while it was a pain. Because how can you trust somebody you can't see? There was a problem there. We know that the Eastern Orthodox Church surrounds itself with icons. It's this visible manifestation that they actually believe it's not just a representation, but they're actually making contact in that icon with Jesus Christ. Even in places like India where false gods and goddesses are set up and little food offerings are placed before that little statue, they actually believe that the god is somehow being manifest through that icon, that statue, and receiving what I'm giving to it and enjoying it. The point is this. People want to see, to touch, 
and to display their God. Like the little girl who at a storm ran into her mother's arms. And mom said, honey, I told you when it's thundering and lightning outside, all you have to do is pray and and God will hear you. God will answer you. And she said, mommy, I know all that stuff, but when the storm's that bad, I want someone with skin on him. And perhaps that's the reason that all of these other cultures had their images because they wanted something visible, something tangible when it came to their God. The psalmist doesn't stop with that contention. He moves on to a comparison. In verses 3 through 8, there is the comparison of all of the false gods of the surrounding peoples, no doubt especially Babylon and the true God of Israel. And the bottom line is that God is himself incomparable. You really can't compare him because he is so the opposite of these false gods. Well, let's look at it. Verse 3, but our God is in heaven. Now, Now, that's a great difference right there. The gods that people make, well, there they are. They're on the earth. They're very limited. They're very localized. God, however, is in heaven. He is not visible. He is sovereign. He is unlimited. It says in verse 3, he does whatever he pleases. He has all power. Now, the skeptic might say, well, that's a convenient out. I can't see your God, and yet you say God exists. But you just say God is in heaven. How do you know God is real? Now, this has been the skeptic's problem for a long time. In fact, there's a little parable a skeptic's parable that goes like this. Once upon a time, two explorers came upon a clearing in the jungle. In the clearing were growing many flowers and many weeds. One explorer said, some gardener must tend this plot. The other disagreed. There is no gardener. And so they pitched their tents and set a watch. No gardener was ever seen, but perhaps he's an invisible gardener. And so they set a barbed wire fence, they electrify it, they patrol it with bloodhounds. But no shrieks ever suggest that some intruder has received a shock. No movements of the wire ever betrayed an invisible climber. The bloodhounds never gave a cry. Yet still the believer is not convinced. But there is a gardener. He's just invisible, intangible, insensible to electric shocks. He's a gardener who has no scent and he makes no sound. A gardener who comes secretly to look after the garden which he loves. At last, the skeptic despaired and said, But what remains of your original assertion? Just how does what you call an invisible, intangible, eternally elusive gardener differ from an imaginary gardener or even from no gardener at all? Now, how do we answer that? Where is your God? You say he's in heaven. How do you know he's real? Simply this. The Christian assertion is that God didn't just stay in heaven, that the gardener entered his garden in the form of his son. He is God manifested in the flesh, made visible, so that even Philip, when he cried out for visibility, saying, Lord, just show us the Father, and it will suffice us. Jesus said, Philip, Haven't I been long enough with you? You don't know who I am. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made through Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. 
the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God was made visible. The gardener came to his garden because the garden was so corrupted by the sin of mankind, it needed redemption. And so the gardener came and he suffered and he died for our sins and he rose again from the dead. So God made himself, in a sense, manifested through Jesus Christ. And our God is in heaven. Verse 3, he does whatever he pleases. Let's go down the list in these verses and notice some of the comparisons. Speaking of the idols in verse 4, he says, Mouths they have, but they don't speak. So here you have this little statue that cannot talk, thus it cannot speak its will. It can't make any promises to those who bow down to it. It cannot communicate. Imagine worshiping a God that can't communicate. You're never sure of anything. You could go up to it and talk to it, and it just stands there like this. It's got a mouth, it's got eyes, it's got all of the faculties, but they don't work. No mouth. What a contrast to our God who speaks to us through his works in creation, Psalm 19, through his word, through his son, God speaks to us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Next on the list, he says, they have eyes, but they don't see. Now, an idol, once it's fashioned, it has to be watched. It can't watch you. What if somebody takes it? In fact, do you remember in Genesis 31 when Rachel leaves home and takes her father Laban's household gods, packages them up? goes on a journey, runs away from home. He chases them down. And the question is classic. Why have you stolen my gods? Now, wouldn't you just love to pop in there and ask, can't your gods take care of themselves? What do you mean, why did you take my gods? But that's the whole point here. They have eyes, but they don't see. Our God, however, is in heaven. Verse 3, verse 16 tells us, The vantage point. He sees all. The prophet said, The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth. Psalm 32, we read, I will guide you with my eye, says the Lord. And then Peter said, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Back in the 1600s, it was John Milton who said, What can escape the eye of God, all-seeing, or deceive his heart, omniscient? The answer, nothing can be hidden. In fact, Jesus even said, the father notices when a sparrow falls to the ground. What a contrast. Goes on to say, they have ears, but they don't hear. This is why it's ludicrous to talk to a statue. You're talking to something that has no ability to hear you. It can't hear the prayers of the people who pray to it. You may remember the priests of Baal when Elijah was having that contest out on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18. Elijah is going to call upon the only true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Israel. And the priests of Baal are out there jumping up and down, slashing their wrists, crying in a tantrum. And finally, Elijah just mocks them. Remember that? He says, cry louder. Louder still. For it's a God, and maybe your God's on a journey, or busy, or maybe he's asleep and you need to wake him up. 
point is they can't hear because they don't exist. And so the image has ears, but it doesn't hear. However, our God is not only open to the cries of his children, he invites the cries of his children. God said through Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 33, verse 3, Call unto me, and I will answer you. I will show you great and mighty things which you know not. And didn't Jesus say, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. God hears you. When um, Lyndon Johnson was president of the United States, one of his special assistants was invited over to the family quarters for dinner and asked to say grace before meals. The assistant bowed his head and said something very, very quietly. The president couldn't hear the prayer, so Johnson, classic as he was, would say, Speak up, Bill! Speak up! I can't hear you! And his assistant turned to him and said, I wasn't addressing you, Mr. President. You know, God doesn't need a voice check when you pray. You don't even have to utter it out loud. You can think about it in your mind and he can read it. In fact, he knows the intents of your heart. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. And so there's the worshiper offering incense, and that little god or goddess can't appreciate this act of devotion. Going on, he says they have hands, but they don't handle. They cannot touch a person in need. They can't handle anything. Our God is so different. God said, my hand is not too short that it cannot save. Now, this is all language. It's anthropomorphism. Don't, don't think of God having the same hands that we have or eyes that we have and ears. The point is, God, the creator of life, is alive. He is well. He can respond. He can take care and he can handle any problem you have. His hands, so to speak, are big enough to deal with your problems. Back in the 1940s, there was a radio show called Baby Snooks. Now, I only know about this by reading, and I, of course, wasn't there to hear it. But it was about a, a little manipulative girl who always managed to get into trouble and always get her way. And uh, so in one episode, she was in a candy store trying to steal candy. She got caught. Dad punished her, took her to the candy store, made her apologize to the proprietor. So she went in, I'm very sorry, please forgive me. He said, forgiven. Then he opened the candy jar and said, go ahead, reach your hand in. Have a handful. She said, no. She refused. I insist. Go ahead. It's okay now. She refused. Finally, the store owner put his hand in and gave her some candy. Well, on the way home, when Dad is having a talk, he said, honey, why didn't you take the man's offer the first time? Is it because you were so ashamed? You felt guilty? She said, no, Daddy. I knew that if I would refuse the first time, that he eventually, being so nice, would reach his hand in and give me some, and his hand's bigger than mine. <laughs> Do you ever feel like you're holding onto a rope and you're slipping? This problem is too big. God's hands are bigger than your hands. He is able to handle anything that comes his way. Let him. They have feet, he says, but they do not walk. You see, the worshiper must go to the idol. The idol is not mobile itself. It can't come to the worshiper. So the worshiper, if he wants the god or goddess with him, has to pick it up and carry it. Hence, Laban said, why have you taken my gods? Now, 
Jeremiah derides the heathen for this, saying, the gods must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. And Isaiah picked up on this. They bear it, that is the idol, on their shoulder. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands. You get the point? Instead of carrying men's burdens, the idol is a burden. You've got to lug this thing around wherever you go. Oh, how different our God is. Emmanuel, God with us, is one of the names of Jesus. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Even the psalmist in Psalm 23 said, If I am down in the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with me. The presence of God. So all in all, the psalmist is saying, Don't be a fool. There will be times when you're in need, when you have a crisis. And if you call upon the wrong God, you'll get no answer. You see the folly then of those who would say, hey, it doesn't matter who you pray to. It doesn't matter who you worship. It doesn't matter what God you choose. They're all the same. Oh, excuse me. No, they're not. There are false gods and there is one true God. It'd be like calling the wrong number. And the folly of saying, well, I got on the telephone, you know, and I, I, at least I dialed the number. Well, it was the wrong number. And so you wait for an answer, but all you get is a recording. I'm sorry you've reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in use. And so you pray, but in a sense you get a recording. I'm sorry, you, this is a God that is no longer in service. <laughs> Never existed. There's only one true God. When I lived in Southern California and worked in Westminster Hospital, I was on call one evening and I was called in to the emergency room to take a patient to radiology, perform a CAT scan, two in the morning. When I went to the emergency room, what stunned me is here's a woman on the gurney with a stack of books on her abdomen. She's clutching them. It was funny because the report said she's complaining of abdominal pain, and I thought, well, she's got this load of books, no wonder. But why would she be in the hospital for an examination carrying books? They were books on every conceivable religious system you can think of except a book on Jesus Christ. There's no New Testament, no Bible. She was literally clutching these things. We had a great conversation that night. I got to tell her about hope, truth, Jesus. But she was holding on just all of these systems contradictory to each other, really, but as if to say, I don't want to offend anybody, so I'll just try them all. The point of the psalmist is in real life, you need a real God who really speaks to you and really can handle what your life is all about, who is strong in comparison to these gods. Now, a word about the comparison. Here is God, invisible but powerful. Here are the gods that men make, very limited and not powerful. There was a commandment, the second commandment, in fact, regarding images that were set up. And the children of Israel took it very seriously. The second commandment says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Now, God repeats and amplifies this commandment enough in the Old Testament that the children of Israel say, Ixnay on the images. 
We don't make them. We don't use them in our worship. Now, they did lapse into idolatry. They made a golden calf after being at Mount Sinai, actually there. Uh, Jeroboam made a couple of golden calves and set one in the north and one in the middle of Israel, and they fell into idolatry periodically. And sometimes people ask, well, what's the big deal of an image? I mean, if it helps draw the worshiper to God, why not? Why the commandment? Why was God so hung up, some might say, on this? For two reasons. Number one, an image dishonors God. You say, why? Simply this. There's no image to be found in the universe that can tell you the whole picture of God. There's no image that can tell you the truth about all that God is. As soon as you cast an image, you limit God to perhaps one attribute that you're trying to portray. And as soon as you make an image, you deny the very truth of the existence of God that he is unlimited. It's his very nature. And so they make a bull at Mount Sinai, a calf. These are the gods that delivered you out of Egypt. What does the bull represent? No doubt strength. Just like in Egypt, they worshipped Apis, the god who was formed like a bull. And Aaron was sort of saying, no doubt, our god's better than their god. Our god delivered us from Egypt. He's strong. But that golden calf said nothing about the love of God, the kindness of God, any of the moral qualities of God. So it dishonored God. And then someone will ask, well, what about pictures of Jesus? I want to tread softly on that issue just to say, do you know what Jesus looked like? We don't have a photograph. And images of Jesus change anyway. Have you noticed in the 1950s in America, it was the frail, mysterious Jesus. The Jesus portrayed in the 1960s was the college radical Jesus. And then in the 80s and 90s, it's now the upwardly mobile Jesus. His hair is kind of layered. (laughs) We don't know what he looked like. It was St. Thomas Aquinas, however, who said, Not even to a statue of Christ is any reverence owed, since it is only a piece of carved wood. Secondly, images mislead men for that very reason. It's a known fact that when you think of an image, when you pray to an image, you tend to think of that person, you tend to think of God in terms of what that image represents. You are bringing God down to a manageable, comfortable size. You are left to your imagination rather than revelation found in the Word of God. And there's another truth here. Verse 8 says, Those who make them are like them. Oh, that's interesting. And so is everyone who trusts in them. In other words, the truth is this. You become like the God you worship. If your God is false, guess what? You become false. You lack dimension. Just like that statue lacks the dimension of life, you lack the dimension of spiritual life. If your God is true and living, you become true and you become alive. You become like what you worship. Now, we should say that uh, there are many kinds of idols, really. You say, well, I don't go home and carve any statues. I don't have any idols in my house. You might drive an idol. You might live in an idol. You might be wearing your idol. There's anything that keeps you from supremely worshiping God and get your attention on anything but him can be an idol. That's why John, when he closed out his epistle, 1 John chapter 5, his parting words were, Little children, he writes to Christians, 
Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, thirdly, we get to the counsel. The psalmist is saying God is reliable because he is trustworthy. Verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He's their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Because God is so unlike false gods, in other words, he really is real, he is existing, uh, he can help, he can be a shield of protection to us, trust him. Trust him. Don't trust them, trust him. Now, the skeptic will say like verse 2, they'll say, where is God? I mean, you, you probably work around certain people who are skeptical, atheistic, agnostic, and they say, well, where's your God? And, and they'll mock the faith that you have. They'll say, it's so ludicrous to believe in something you can't understand. Next time, challenge them. They live their whole lives doing things they don't understand. They may not understand how automobiles work in totality, but they have faith that when they put a key in a hole and turn it to the right, boom, will happen. They have faith that when they go to the bank with something called a check, a little piece of paper, that money will be credited to their account because somebody made a promise and they're having faith. They may not understand. They may go to a doctor and they put their faith in that doctor, though they may not understand medicine. They live by faith. We have an object, a person to believe in. Trust, it says here, in the Lord. He's trustworthy. Besides that, he's gracious. Look in verse 12. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Notice five times he uses the word bless. I don't think he wants you to miss that. God will bless you. God will bless you. God will bless you. Oh, may God bless you. You say, well, what is a blessing? Simply this. Anything from the hand of God for your good and His glory is a blessing. And the fact that he says five times, God will bless you, indicates that God will bless you. Very simple. And again and again and again and again. None of this, oh, God, it's enough. Don't bless me anymore. You've done it once. Once is enough. It's not the nature of God. Charles Spurgeon said, His blessing delights to visit the same house very often and to abide where it has once lodged. You say, well, maybe God will run out eventually if he keeps giving so many blessings away. Well, that's not what Paul said in Romans 5. Much more the grace of God abounds to many. And even where sin abounds, grace does abound, he said, much more. Do you remember what happened in 1492? Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Well, in 1492, the Spanish government minted a coin, and on the back was a a carving of the Straits of Gibraltar, which represented the last frontier. Nothing past that. People wouldn't venture for the most part. And the Straits of Gibraltar underneath was the inscription, Ne plus ultra, no more beyond. There's nothing beyond this point. When Columbus came back from the New World, they had to remint those coins. 
And they used the same Straits of Gibraltar with the inscription plus ultra. There's more beyond. There's more beyond this. You know certain things about God. You have a present knowledge, a present revelation. God's still greater than that. And the more we discover about God's goodness, we come to a point, oh God, you've been so good to me. God says there's more. And just perhaps when you think you can't contain it, there's more still. And it says at the end of this psalm, we'll be praising him forevermore. Now, who can trust God? It says in verse 13, both small and great. Anybody can. The small person in life, the great person of great stature and notoriety, anybody can trust the Lord. But you have to be willing to do it. God is alive. He is well. God is in heaven, but he didn't stay there. He came to the earth. His son died for our sins and rose again from the dead. And he's able to handle anything that comes his way when you give it to him. It comes your way. If you worship the true and the living God, you will become true and living. You'll become alive and well. If you worship false gods, you become false like they are, empty like they are. And yes, there will be scoffers who will mock at your faith. But you know better. You can trust God. When the skeptic stood addressing an audience of people, he spoke to them about the idiocy of having faith, especially Christian faith. And he went on and he mocked and he tried to use clever arguments to tear down a belief in Jesus Christ. It's sheer folly to trust in Christ. And then when he asked the audience, are there any questions? A man got up, walked to the front of the auditorium and stood there. He was the town drunk who had been converted. And he had an orange and he peeled it. The man said, do you have a question? The guy didn't say anything, just peeled his orange. And he ate it segment by segment in front of the whole audience. And then afterwards, he turned and he said, yes, I have a question. Was the orange that I just ate bitter or sweet? The speaker said, idiot, how would I know? I didn't taste it. The man smiled and said, that's my point. And how can you know anything about Christ if you've not tried him? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning? You may be here and you may be the sort that loves to pontificate and philosophize all that you know about God. Do you know him personally? Have you ever come to him and given him your life and let him change your life? It's a different story if you do. Let's pray. Lord, there's a great deal we can know about you because you have been pleased to reveal it through your word, ultimately through your son. And Lord Jesus really is the central issue. And I pray that many today would would come to Jesus Christ, would try Him, would give their lives to Him. There is only one God. There's only one way to heaven, only one Savior. And you've made it so that both small and great can come. We pray they would. Perhaps you're considering your life this morning in this time of prayer, and you would admit, I don't really know God. I don't know that my sins have been forgiven. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to have guilt removed. I'd love to meet this Savior who died for me and rose again from the dead for me. Dead for me. Dead for me.
it for me.